Hello, folks. Edith here with my weekly podcast, Soundtracking. Uh, I've got to apologize for the slightly nasally and deep tones of my voice today. It's basically, it's the end of London Film Festival and I'm spent. <laughs> there's been so much conversation. There's been so many premieres. So I have a little bit of the sniffles. It's not the, uh, it's not Rona, don't worry. And uh, yeah, my voice is on its last legs. So uh, we'll get through this together. I hope. Um, before I start, I wanted to say a massive thank you to everybody who gets in touch. There's been such a lovely stream of emails and I'm kind of slowly getting through them. I've got a couple of days off, so my plan is to reply to you all to genuinely and, and personally show my appreciation for you getting in touch. And you can do that by email, info at edithbowman.com. And this is lovely from Peter. Uh, he says, hi, I'm a composer from Brussels, Belgium, and I'm a fan of your podcast. I love that you play music from the film or composer you're talking to, but also that you talk to the directors about their relationship to music in film. There were some really good insights from the latest David Russell episode, like that a film becomes a creature of itself and finds the music. Thank you so much for all your work. Peter also then sends me a, a little um, link to a snippet of a BAFTA Q&A that he wanted to share. It's director, actor, the fabulous David Oyelowo on how they got to work together on The Waterman back in 2020. So Dave, uh, Peter, I'm very excited to watch that Q&A uh, with David about you guys working together. And thank you so much for getting in touch. And you can do the same, as I said, info at edithbowman.com. Now, uh, our guest this week is a composer with a huge and varied body of work who I regularly see on the London screening circuit and I've been trying to get her on soundtracking for some time. Nanita Desai's work includes a remarkable number of TV shows, films such as The Reason I Jump for Sama and more recently 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible. You'll hear plenty of her work shortly but first a word from our friends at Vintage Cash Cow. Now I love a cosy clean home especially heading into winter, that hibernation period which generally requires a little bit of decluttering. Now, that's usually a pretty stressful task, even with the music blasting to inspire me in the background, given that most of my drawers and cupboards, well, it's fair to say they're full of things that probably haven't seen the light of day in years. Well, Vintage Cash Cow makes selling your old valuables easy because you don't have to deal with selling items individually. Basically, fill a box with jewellery, cameras, coins, vintage toys, so much more, and post for free or arrange a collection. Within a week, you'll get a cash offer. If you accept, you'll feel better knowing your unused things have become part of the circular economy, which is of course good for reducing waste and tackling climate change. You'll have a more relaxing, spacious home and a clear head. Vintage Cash Cow has great reviews on Trustpilot and right now are offering listeners a £20 bonus with the code sounds. Another reason to put some music on, have a rummage and fill a box for Vintage Cash Cow today. So if you feel inspired, head to vintagecashcow.co.uk now, enter the code sounds on the sign up page and you'll get £20 extra when you sell. That's vintagecashcow.co.uk with the code sounds. And so to Nanita, and we'll begin with the opening cue from that beautiful and mind-blowing documentary, 14 Peaks.
do. At last. Yeah. <laughs> you are one busy lady. I saw your posts. I mean, how many films? Oh, I know. It's my the, the that song. It's the most wonderful time of the year, which is normally around Christmas. But for me, this is my favorite time of the year because I get to do all these Q and A's. I'm I'm just fascinated, to be honest. It's just a really beautiful opportunity to to learn about film through these people, to be honest. I love your collection of instruments on the wall. Yeah. They're beautiful. Well, the most important one is my cat. (laughs) (laughs) He's asleep. He's a dreadful studio assistant, though. He sleeps on the job a lot. (laughs) What's the name of that beautiful little string guitar between the two? That one, yeah. That's a Cavaquinho. Cavaquinho, what a beautiful name. It's from South America. It's from the Andes. And that was made for me by this guy in Bolivia. Uh, so it's from Chile and Bolivia. And on, on every project, I treat myself to, a, uh, to a, a new musical instrument or a musical toy of some kind. And so that was, I did that, uh, what do I, I scored this series um, set in, in Chile. This guy came along with five or six beautiful cavaquinhos, all with different designs. And I chose that one. That one spoke to me. Um, That's beautiful. Yeah. Anita, I don't really know where to start with you because the idea that we could even skim the surface of the work that you've done as a composer and creative, you know, in our slot today is it would be impossible. It's it's utterly inspiring when you you look look through the the amount, but also the depth of work and the variety of work that you've been involved in. But I thought it'd be really nice to start with people for people listening to talk about where it started for you, where the world of composing and how that started for you? Well, uh, how the world of composing started, I guess I came into it through technology. But I mean, I grew, I was born and brought up in London, uh, in in southwest London. And I went my um, second generation British Asian, I guess. So I went to a Church of England primary school and I learned the violin and the piano and sang in the school choir and <laughs> sang in Latin choirs, you know, and singing. Oh. Latin. And, uh, and then I had my own band at school as a, as a young teenager. So I was growing up listening to, you know, George Michael and I mean, all the pop bands of the day, mm. which I yeah. But at home, I, I had to go to the Hindu temple. Uh, so my mother forced me to learn uh, the sitar and the tablas. So I kind of have this schizophrenic uh, musical childhood. And then I got into, and I was, I, I sort of, I didn't enjoy learning Indian classical music because I'd, I'd practice scales all day for six months on end and, and have calluses on my fingers. But then I loved playing and teaching myself the guitar, you know, the steel string guitar at, at yeah. school. So I, I, I got into technology, music technology, and I was always a bit of a tomboy and a, and a geek at school into computers and programming. And, um, and I got into sound and I just loved, I used to go out and record sound effects and the, found, the, the world around me on my mm. travels. And then I discovered film as a teen and sort of the sound of film. And that just, it just, it, it was such an escapist form of creativity for me. But I then got into the world of sound design. And I, so I started off as a sound designer on feature films. So I've got this, this really sort of non-musical background. I haven't got a degree in music. So I, I got a degree in mathematics because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, I, need, I was under peer pressure, you know, to do something formal and get a real job. 
Yeah. But I never got, I never had a real job. And so I then got. None of us did. I think those are the best ones where you don't, when you kind of go, what do you do? Um, It's kind of hard to explain, really. (laughs) It is. It is. And, and even now my parents go, it used to be for years. When are you getting a real job, Nanita? And now it's like, yeah. (laughs) And now it's like, uh, oh, you work too hard. (laughs) So I got into sound design, working as a sound designer on feature films. I, mm. I got a scholarship to go to the NFTS. And then, I mean, it was a fantastic experience learning about the sonic landscape of film, not just about music, but the whole, you know, the nat- storytelling through sound in film. It's really interesting. Like, I loved Barton Fink by the Coen brothers. You know, they, they had this amazing sound designer called Skip Leavesey, who lives in, who lived in New York. And he did all the sound design for their films. And John, what's the good guy, the big guy in Barton Fink? I mean, there was an amazing the, the actor, John, John Goodman. Yeah, John Goodman. I mean, he was just phenomenal in that in that movie, and and that really inspired me. And of course, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's um, Apocalypse Now, and Walter Murch, the legendary sound uh, designer and picture editor, and you know, taking the sound of the Chinook helicopter and and uh, morphing it into you know it was just it's just an amazing amazing soundtrack yeah so I got tired of working on films and I'd met Peter Gabriel by chance and wow. uh, when I was at university and he said um, uh, look me up when you finish your course Anita <laughs> in the phone book yeah <laughs> under G. <laughs> <laughs> and um and I sort of I forgot about it I thought he was kidding you know and I didn't. I was a, and then a couple of years later I got I was like sitting at home out of work tired of being a sound designer and I remembered what he said so I wrote him a handwritten letter to his studio in real world and mm. um, and I got a phone call from the studio manager at Real World Studios. Said, "Oh, we've got your letter, Nanita. Would you like to come down for a visit?" And so oh, wow. I, I trottled to Real World, and literally that I had the most inspiring, amazing day. Just talk, talking to the guys at Real World, and they said, "Would you like to be Peter's assistant music engineer?" And that was how my music career began, really. Um, because I just got to work with my musical hero, you know. Wow. Um, and, and also um, working with the world's best musicians and producers. I mean, I got to work with, um, I sang backing vocals for Daniel Lenoir. He was recording in his studio one day and recorded drums, uh, Billy Cobham playing drums and Nigel Kennedy on the violin. And wow. it was just an incredible time to be, you know, there working with Peter and learning so much, not about music technology or anything really, but just about how to um, to work with creatives, with, with other human beings and just yeah. manage creative egos and personalities. Yeah. And I imagine as well, because, you know, when I think of his music and I think of him as a, as a creative one of the many things about him is that his his openness and his inclusivity of exploration of new sounds and voices and embracing cultures and mixing cultures and 
given a platform to people to tell stories or through his music, tell stories of other cultures and embrace that within his music and his creativity. And that's something that I've always, I always associate with him, I think. Yeah, very much so. And, and, and he, what it taught me was, I mean, with my background in sound design and, and you know, having learned the sitar and tablas reluctantly as a kid, it opened my mind up to the world of sound, musical mm. sound. It doesn't matter what musical instrument or musician you're working with. It's all about storytelling through, regardless of the sounds that you're using. You know, you can use an orchestra or you can use a band like, I don't know, Son Lux and everything everywhere all at once and Johnny Greenwood and Trent Reznor. You know, there's, there's so many ways of telling stories. Mm. And that, so that was my way in because it, it made... It was like a world of possibilities where you didn't you didn't have to be to go to music college to do a yeah. degree in music, you know. And the one lesson I think I learned from working with Peter was it's about how to uh, it's about capturing the magic of performance, you know. And it's like with him, you always have the record button on; it hmm. never never stops. And and that's I've held that with me so that when you work with a musician. If you're doing more than three or four takes, then they're past the peak of their performance. You know, then it becomes yeah. familiar and it becomes mm -hmm. slightly stayed and slightly repetitive. Yeah. yeah. But when you sort of, when you play and you respond to something really quickly, just that the first take or the second take, it's like the first take is a little bit rough and ready. Yeah. And the second take is so magical, the second or third take, because you go, oh, there's a, there's a spark of something. Like it's like um, uh, David Fincher, you know. I remember he when he discovered digital film cameras. I think he worked with the Red Camera, and he said, "Okay, I don't have to work with a film reel anymore. It's limit the limitation of recording for filming for twenty minutes. So I'll just film and film and film and film." And so he's, I think he's quite well known for having done seventy takes with an actor, yeah, with an actress, and he just sucks the performance dry out mm -hmm. of the um, out of the actor and then he goes after 70 takes and go yep that's it i got it but my i'm the i'm the opposite. the opposite i like to sort of work fast and get your creative down, ideas down as fast as possible because that's where the magic happens yeah and then i'll spend hours and days perfecting and fine-tuning and just massaging every single note till it's yeah but it's just getting the ideas down I think what's wonderful that, you know, from the, the luxury that I have of getting to talk to so many people about the relationship between film, TV and music is the, the development of that world as well. And how those worlds of the sound design and the composer, they're so important. The, the collaboration and the relationship between that is, is so important, more so now than I think it's ever been. And, and you know, you speak to, you mentioned about some of the Q&As that I've been doing, and I, I was so enamoured to be in the presence of Alejandro González Iñárritu at the weekend talking about Bardo, which is a phenomenal film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Bryce Desner's done the score for that. But there's, 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 a, there's no clear line between the score and the sound design. That is a relationship that is entwined, that is so, you can't have one without the other almost in a way. And so it must be wonderful for you to have that background in sound design, that you bring that knowledge and that wealth to when you're composing and, and have an appreciation and a respect for that world as well. Yes. 
very much so. I, I like to blur the lines and I like working closely with sound designers whenever I can. Uh, I mean, I got to have the most amazing opportunity to do that on The Reason I Jump. Jerry Rothwell, director, contacted me and said, oh, Nanita, are you interested in this project? And I'd, I'd known Jerry for a couple of years and I thought, well, one day we'll find, I, I mean, I was a huge fangirl of his work anyway, and I met him at a film festival and we kept in touch for a couple of years. And so one day we'll find something to work on. And then he just contacted me and said, have you ever worked with sound design and found sound? And I thought, uh, Jerry, you know that I was a sound designer. <laughs> And it's a very personal, moving film. It's about, um, it's based on the book, The Reason I Jump, mm. which was a series of 53 questions written by this 12-year-old boy, Naoki Higashida, who tries to explain to the world what it feels like to be autistic. And so because the autistic characters in the film were just so beautiful and amazing, you experience the world through their eyes of the world of nonverbal autism. And because this, their senses are so heightened and it's, it's super immersive and we mixed it in Dolby Atmos and 360 sound and, you know, the, the, the sound and, the, and the, they're very sensitive. The characters are very sensitive to the environment and the world around them. Mm-hmm. And so my way into a film, into any project, is to do as much research as I can to be authentic and true to the story and true to the characters and like for Osama you oh, know, I was going to ask you about for Osama same kind of experience you know what I worked on that for a year and a half with going on that journey with the um with Wad and, and mm. you know the directors and um and so with the reason I jump it was I read scientific papers on autism and sound and the relationship between sound and, and neurodiversity and so I wanted to translate all these aspects of autism uh, that neurodivergent um, people experience and translate that into music, give the characters a voice, uh, literally a, a musical voice because they're non-verbal.
so I did all the vocals. I, I do sort of like with my going back to being a teenager, you know, I love to sing, but I'm I'm too I suffer from stage fright, so I don't sing to an audience, but I can mm-hmm. happily sing bits and pieces on my score and warp warp and twist my voice. And so so I did all the vocals on the score and took, for example, took the words, key phrases and words from the original book. Mm-hmm slated them into the original Japanese and then broke them down phonetically and sang wow. the words in the, in the score so that when you hear the words, you don't know what you're listening to, but it's all things like beautiful circle or we are on the edge of time and, you know, all these kind of existential phrases in the book mm. that subliminally hopefully get, get into the consciousness of the of the audience and the yeah. I mean, for that particular project, you know, the reason I jumped, which was, I, I would do some work with Nord of Robbins, at, um, you know, music therapy charity. And that's the thing that I always kind of take away and I'm so proud to be part of is because the fact that music has this ability to cut through, to communicate or to allow people to communicate in a way that that words and, and you know, dialogue sometimes can't. And I think that the way that you hear and you talk about that and the way that you give them a voice musically in this film is is really incredibly powerful yeah i mean and and also you know like a we were talking about you know a director a film director casting their actors i cast my musicians my musician contributors so that like for example on the reason i jump i i found this amazing cellist who's uh, autistic herself and she plays for the she plays the cello for the london philharmonic orchestra and she's the cultural ambassador for the National Autistic Society in the UK. And wow. just getting people like that who, and when, so when she played the cello on the film, it just brought it home to me that her response to the film was so emotional and moving that it gave me an amazing insight into her understanding of the world as well.
And with Forsama, that was an, um, that was <laughs> that was a challenging journey. Um, yeah, I mean, emotionally, if nothing else, do you know what I mean? It's oh God, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point, I think, as well, because you know there are a lot of examples with film, whether they're documentaries, whether they're features. Uh, or whether it's a TV series as well, that that the music is just there to kind of drive emotion. And I think what you did beautifully for Zama is that thing where you, because it could have easily, you know, kind of pushed the emotion or, and heightened it even more from how emotional the story was already. But you didn't. Well, talk to me a little bit about about working out what that, what the sound would be, the music would be and the score would be for that and and how you, how you kind of framed that around the emotion and the story and the the characters? Well, you know, it didn't. It, it started off in a very different place. I think I scored that film three times in three different ways. Wow! Um, <laughs> it started off as a, and I love going on that journey with the filmmaker. And you know, I was there very early on in the edit, mm. and the director gave me. I was given a whole playlist of reference tracks it said we want a score this is about the syrian revolution the syrian uprising mm-hmm. we want a score that um that is a little bit along the lines of a bombastic hollywood um middle eastern score film score like mm-hmm. catherine bigelow's zero dark 30 or argo and that kind yeah. of score. i thought oh right okay fine here yeah. and so i wrote about 80 tracks 80 uh, yeah, um, hell. the course of about, I don't know, the first 12 weeks of the edit, first three months of the edit. Um, so I was happily writing away. And they were work- we were working with the music. And then about three months into the edit, the, like the film wasn't quite working. Something wasn't gelling. And, they, and it's as though the film hadn't quite found its voice. And that's because it's a found footage film, you know, with 500 hours worth of film mm-hmm. trying to you could make 500 films out of that you're trying to craft a narrative in the edit of the film and that and that's quite often the way it is with feature documentaries as opposed to you know scripted and and having a script to work to we didn't yeah. have a script and so so the film wasn't working and there was a bit of a pause i thought what's wrong and then they realized the true heart of the film was this intimate relationship between the mother and the daughter and when, and basically, it's a, the film's a love letter to mm-hmm. her daughter to explain to Sama why they stayed in, in Aleppo and why they eventually decided to leave and all the decisions they made. And when they realized that, um, the film became much more intimate and just down to this singular human level. Yeah. Of course, none of the music that I'd written worked anymore. <laughs> so, so we went back to the drawing board.
And, um, you know, it was just this big bombastic score that just no longer worked. Mm. And so I, I went to the heart, tried to capture the heart of the film. And I brought in, and you see this, the crumbling city of Aleppo around you. And it's, it's tough. I mean, mm. it's really, really hard. And so I found this Syrian violinist who's a refugee that was living in Italy at the time. And uh, this amazing violinist, and he plays the violin, the Syrian violin, like it's not like this pure, pristine Western classical violin. It's this, it has dirt and grit and an earthiness to the yeah. sound, which is raw. And I just stripped, we just stripped all the music away and, and stripped it right back to its core basics. And had, I had this guy play the violin, Syrian violin, and it just, it just mirrored Aleppo. It was like, it was the musical beating heart of the film. And and just there's this, this this amazing scene where they're driving in an open top vehicle through the streets of Aleppo with all the bombing and shelling going on, and I had this big bombastic track, this tense thriller type action track play. And so what are we doing here? You know, it mm. doesn't work. We took ninety percent of the the music, all the elements out, the stems, and we just left with this bit heartbeat of a rhythm of a musical drum beat. Mm -hmm. and we thought, are we listening to music or is that the sound of the bombs going off in aleppo and and that was like it's like the soundtrack became suddenly embedded yeah into the, into the landscape of the sound design and it was so much more effective How do you find you know, the musicians, you know, talking about finding that Syrian violinist and that's an amazing thing to do, to have a commitment to find musicians that are, I guess, you know, authentic to the story, really authentic to what you're you're trying to say, be that, be they, be players from, you know, and you've done so many, so much work across documentaries and, and, and TV and film. And it's so wonderful to hear the the kind of dedication and the pristine nature that you go to, to to give things authenticity. So when you're looking for, when you're thinking about 
finding musicians and for Sama being an example, where do you find a where did you find your Italian living Syrian you know refu- refugee violin player? Um, just talking to people, and also I, I like to I like to make. I think what's important for me is to make the invisible visible, you know, that we have our session musicians and the orchestras and players, and I work with them as well, you know, Mm -hmm. that's great, depending on the project. But sometimes, you know, I think it's important for me to to find people that you've never heard of or or discovered they're playing. Like I went to um, this amazing film music, uh, not film music, sorry, a music showcase festival called Womex. And every year, it's not WOMAD, it's WOMEX. Mm-hmm. It's like for musicians all over the world to showcase their work to the music industry. And they perform showcases. And in every, every year, they have it in a different European country. And, uh, and I went to Copenhagen about six, seven years ago and saw like showcase after showcase of these incredible musicians. And there was this accordion player from Finland who was wielding this accordion on stage it was um like a monster and it was like techno accordion it was like a breathing monster of an instrument and it wasn't your twee italian french melodic kind of thing it was like him on stage stamping his feet for about 40 minutes playing the playing the accordion i thought one day i'm going to use this musician on something and i just you know went up and we kept in touch and he was living 500 kilometers west of Helsinki, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Wow. And, uh, and I did this um, film about this Swedish serial killer mm-hmm. called Confessions of Thomas Quick. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to use the, the cliched Swedish hurdy-gurdy or the nickel harp <laughs> or, you know, everyone uses that, you know. Uh, and, um, and so I thought, oh, there's this guy, Antti Palanen, you know, he lives in, he lives in you know, off, out of Helsinki. I'll contact him. And sure enough, he played on the score and it turned out to be the accordion was the sound of this, the dark voice of this serial killer. Um, but wow. um, but, but I, I, I do, my, I like to research and I, you know, I find musicians from all sorts of unusual sources yeah. and, and the internet's great as well. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm really excited to hear as well um, that you have coming up? Because you've, like I say, you, you there, there's nothing that you've not done as a composer in terms of the, you know, sort of, the TV, the film, the documentaries and stuff, is Funny Woman. I can't wait to see this. I'm such a yeah. fan of Jem Arterton. I think she's brilliant. And the cast for it just looks absolutely amazing. She's kind of, she plays this sort of female comedian in the 60s. I, it just looks brilliant. Uh, I've not seen anything apart from a kind of, I think done a sort of teaser trailer thing about it, but seen some imagery and stuff as well. And I was yeah. so excited to see that you've done the score for this. Yeah. Is, uh, is it six part art? I think it is, or it's a six-parter. Yeah, um, and uh, I think they were planning to release it this fall, this autumn. But uh, it's had such a, it's tested so well. I think they're really going to go all guns out for it in the new year. And for me, it's just oh, it's fantastic because I've never done comedy drama. I like to take myself out of my comfort zone musically. You know, I, people always think, oh, Anita does all dark stuff, you know, and the, I inhabit a dark space. And I do, and it comes to me naturally. But I don't know, I sort of talk them into giving me the job. <laughs> and um, and it's, it's, it's kind of like the British version of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. 
it is brilliant and there are a lot of songs in it you know there are loads of source songs in it and and so score wise i felt oh i'm competing with this it's about um uh, Gemma arterton plays the character of barbara and uh based on the nick hornby novel funny mm-hmm. girl but it's called funny woman, woman yeah and i said you can't call it funny girl and the lead character's barbara because you know it's barbara streisand you know you just cannot go there <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she comes down to london from blackpool to make her way in london 1964 mm-hmm. and so it's so charming and Gemma just steals the show she's in almost every scene she's incredible her physical humor is amazing Amazing mm. and very musical. I had to write her. Uh, she sang. I wrote a little uh, ditty, which is the theme tune for her show in the series. In the series, great. And so she sings it uh, when she's auditioning for the role in the series. And what was cool about the sh- musically was that I put together a guitar-based band for the score. Oh, uh, wicked! Really done before. I had the guitarist from Kasabian uh, playing on oh, it. Amazing. And drums and bass and. Uh, and it's like it's just a band score and every episode most of the episodes they have one key song like sandy shores downtown and i had to do my own musical instrumental arrangement of it which then segues into the original downtown right. so lots of fun things like that uh, musically um it's lovely and- watching your face as you talk about it the smile on your face as you're talking about it. it's clearly been a lovely experience yeah i mean it's just the first yeah i spent six months working on it earlier this year and it's mm-hmm. a it's a great team and it's just it's a charming show i've not seen anything like it in the uk yeah and it's very there's a lot of music in it that you'll it'll bring back lots of wonderful music memories from uh, from the early 60s yeah it's really cool it is really healthy to kind of push ourselves outside of the comfort zone you know it's to c- complacency can be a yeah it can be a drag i think sometimes what's on the what's on the to-do list what a, well i'm i'm working on a i'm working on a few projects i can't i can see that yeah. talk about being busy <laughs> but i'm working on a on a fantasy series at the moment uh which oh, wow. is, i'll be working on that for the next year and that's going to be that's going to be amazing and uh, so it's it's very big orchestra with lots of uh, it's like the culmination of everything that I've done before. It's a lot of world music elements with, with electronics, great big orchestra, fantasy, world building. But what else? I've got a series coming out, wildlife series coming out actually. It's called Predators. Yeah. Tom Hardy's done the voiceover. Oh no, I saw this. Everybody's gone mental about it because. Tom Hardy's doing the voice of it. It's like yeah. everyone's yeah. just going to be glued to their screens watching that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's for Sky and uh, in the UK and Netflix everywhere else. And they, you know, all these wildlife shows that you see, you know, like the wonderful Hans Zimmer, Planet Earths and so on. It said, we don't want that. We don't want your, the orchestra is banned from the score. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, so it's totally... Told storytelling through synths and electronics. No theremins. I can see if there is that a theremin behind you as well. Does that feature? Yeah, I've got a little theremin there. Yeah, so all sorts of synth, a little bit, you know, influenced by Stranger Things. So it's like, but it's animals. Uh, So, uh, so that's um, just just finishing that off this week, actually. When do we get to see that? Do you know? Is it this year? It comes out in November in a few weeks. 
so that's that's quite exciting um and uh working on a uh, season two of The Tower with Gemma Whelan. That's, yeah. that's fun. Yeah, oh, so. Amazing season two. I didn't know they were coming back with another season. That's great. Yeah, I didn't think they were going to recommission it, but they, they, I think they thought it was quite popular. So um, Brilliant. that's coming up. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, listen, that's that's great to know because then it gives us another excuse to do part two with you. I mean, maybe once Funny funny Woman's out and Predators is out as well, then we can, we've got another excuse to to talk about that and, and talk about some more of your absolutely incredible pieces of work. But it's been lovely to to talk about a few of them today. Um, it's so great to see you. I normally just, you're such a committed, such a committed fan as well of the world, I think, because I always see you, it's always kind of like, I'm always rushing out the door or whatever, and I see you, hi! You know, you're always at Q&As and you're always absorbed in the world as well. You you pay so much attention to what's going on. It's it's really inspiring, Anita. Oh, thanks, Edith. I mean, I just, yeah, I love I love the uh, film industry. Mm. It's great to be a part of it. Yeah, same. Well, I hope I get to see you soon. And I really, really thank you so much today for your time. It's great to chat to you. Hope to bump into you at a screening soon. I hope so too. Have a great day, lovely. See you later. Bye. Bye. From the score to season one of The Tower, that's the end credit music rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the wonderful Nanita Desai. My huge thanks to Nanita for taking the time to talk to us and also shout out to the team at White Bear for sorting that out. As she mentioned, plenty of things coming up for her that give us an excuse for part two in the not too distant future. Head to edithbowman.com to hear every single previous episode of the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe while you're there. That means you won't miss any conversations about film, music, the moment they land in the future. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at SoundtrackUK. And please send us an email to info at edithbowman.com. Next week, I am thrilled to welcome back to Soundtracking the one and only, the multi-award winning writer, director, producer, Martin McDonough to talk about his latest film, The Banshees of Inisherin. It stars Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And as you'd expect, if you're a fan of Martin's previous work, things like Three Billboards, Seven Psychopaths, he has this brilliant, unique, dark comedic tone that has so many layers to it. And once again, he's working with Carter Barwell. It's out in cinemas on Friday. So uh, maybe if you get the chance, go and see it before you join Martin and myself next week for our latest episode of Soundtracking. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.